Hello, good evening, and welcome to Seascapes. On tonight's programme, we visit Phoenix Lighthouse off the coast of County Kerry, and we're on board a rowing boat, which is about to take on the challenge of crossing the Atlantic. Over the last while, we've been visiting some of the great lighthouses of Ireland. And we continue those visits tonight with a stop off at Phoenix Lighthouse in County Kerry. It sits on Samphire Island, just offshore from the village of Phoenix, and it's been operating since 1854. Now, there's a modern LED beam, and that can be seen from 13 miles away. Noel Sweeney went there, and he met first with tour operator Mary O'Brien Brown, who took him across to the island, and then later with John McGibney, who gave him a history lesson of the lighthouse. Phoenix Lighthouse sits on the rugged Little Samphire Island, about 600 metres offshore from Phoenix Pier in North Kerry. I'm on board the Kerry Killeen, a tour boat operated by Mary and Alan Brown, who run the Tralee Bay Experience. Tours to Phoenix Lighthouse are nothing new, but the Tralee Bay Experience is a relatively new venture as Mary O'Brien Brown explains. My name is Mary O'Brien Brown and welcome to Tralee Bay. Uh, this morning it's a beautiful autumnal Saturday morning and you're on board the Kerry Killeen, um, which is otherwise known as Tralee Bay Experience, Phoenix. Tralee Bay Experience was born July 2021. A friend of ours owned the boat and decided to go sail the world. So they asked us would we like to, to purchase the boat. So we gave it a lot of thought over the summer. My husband's a fisherman and uh, I suppose most fishermen today, they have to reinvent themselves. The summer months can be quieter for him. So we thought we'd give it a go. We have three small kids. Uh, we're both from here, we're both from Phoenix, and we've got a lot of history. And, and we have um, another skipper, Eddie Joe Mahoney as well. Uh, he also uh, helps us out. So I didn't give the tours and I do. They're taking me from the pier at the edge of Phoenix village, across to the little Samphire Island, uh, obviously the, the landmark straight in front of us is the Phoenix Lighthouse, the Little Sanford Island. This is Our Lighthouse tour guide, John McGibney, is telling me all about Phoenix Lighthouse, a lighthouse built in the height of the Great Famine. He begins by describing his role at the lighthouse and how it is to access the island. At the moment I'm just a tour guide out to the island here and uh, as I say I just bring tours out guide around the island and show them all the bits and pieces of paraphernalia just out here. The Phoenix Lighthouse can't be accessible every day of the week, I, I imagine? No, it is very well dependent and it's also tidal dependent. Um, at, st- at low tide we cannot land and then if we've got winds in certain arcs we cannot land either. So it is weather dependent. How has the uh, demand been for the tours out here? There's a great demand but with uh, well, with COVID, it kind of just buried the whole thing. Like, uh, but now that it's starting to relax a bit, we're starting to get people to come back. We were busy before COVID, and we hope to get busy again next year. When was the lighthouse built here in Phoenix, um, John? Uh, 1848, they started to go about getting a lighthouse out here on Little Sapphire Island. and uh, It took them near enough four or five years to get up and running. In 1854, the first light came on on the 1st of June, 19, as I say, 1854. Looking ac- across Tralee Bay, there seems to be a number of points where a lighthouse 
could typically go? Why, why was Samphire Island chosen as the location? The reason for it was, uh, this is the outer island. We have two Samphire Islands, large one, the great Samphire Islands inside, and this one here. The idea of the lighthouse being here was that it was in such, such a situation that it guided both safely into Trulli Bay and uh, it was far enough out from the land that it was totally visible from up north and out west to any incoming ships. In 1854, the first light came on uh, and it was Inspector Halpin that was the engineer behind building this. What was the main type of sea traffic or marine traffic that was coming up into Tralee Bay at the time? The traffic that would have been coming up at this time would have been headed for Blenneville or even further up into Tralee town itself. So you're looking at uh, sailing boats and stuff like that. Like it was everything would have been under sail, very little steam at that time. What kind of light does, does the Phoenix Lighthouse give off today? It would give off up to 13 miles out to sea. We have changed from the very beginning when it was uh, oil, then gas, electricity, and now we're under solar power. So it's all solar power at the moment, and it gives a good light out to about 13 miles. What kind of bulb is in it and what kind of lens? Well, the original bulb would have been massive. Technology has brought us fo- forward, and at the moment we've got a carousel of six lights above, and uh, if one of them bulb, bulbs blow, it'll actually automatically go to the next one. So we've six outs before we're in darkness, six bulbs up there. What is the signature light signal coming from Phoenix Lighthouse? It'd be four seconds dark, one second late. From uh, 1854 to 1954, it was oil, paraffin oil. Then they changed it over to acetylene gas. So they, they had four, four or five tanks down at the bottom of the building with gas, with a mantle up here, which they automated over a two-year period. The keeper left the island in 1956, 1956, yes. So since 1956, it's been gas right up until 1976, when they decided to put generators out here. Uh, and went electric, so it was electric light up here from 76 right up until 2013 when they decided to go solar power. So all the generators and everything all obsolete now. Also what we're doing now is we're running off solar panels. The mainland ones will be still turned on to electric, yeah. but as it is we're out here with no electricity on the island itself. So 2013 they put out the solar power panels and we've changed one bulb in all those years. So, maintenance-free. Solar power today, but how was life for the people who lived on the island without power or running water? 1901, there was a family of nine actually living on this island. He was Donegal. He was, uh, his name was Meehan from Donegal, so it's the Meehans from Donegal. A family of nine, so you can just imagine what it would have been like out here. In 1911, there was a family of three living out here. Now, uh, when I say three, there was a husband, wife and a daughter at that stage. He would be the principal keeper, and his wife would be an assistant keeper. So there was always an assistant keeper with the keeper, and that was usually his wife mm. when they were living here. Up the front there, there's a lovely kind of patch of greenery, and there's a bit of land here, but like, would that have been farmed in some way, or do we know? Or? Um, he had two gardens just down the f- uh, on the east side of the lighthouse here itself. Uh, he probably would have had vegetables, potatoes, stuff like that growing in it. But we had or at Ahiva would have had a tender coming three times to the lighthouse every week from the mainland. So he wasn't totally on his own. There was a boat that would come twice, three times a week with provisions, post, whatever was needed. 
Phoenix Lighthouse, is there any major disasters or rescues associated with this lighthouse? Right, there was a recording made of a rescue back in 1877. It was on the 14th of January and uh, apparently a ship, a schooner, was driven ashore in heavy seas near Barrow. Uh, when the shipwreck was uh, kind of in such a state that they couldn't save it anymore, the captain and the crew took to their boats in the dark at night in heavy seas and made the long pull against headwinds and reached the lighthouse at around 2 a.m. in the morning. Um, the keeper himself and his family sheltered the shipwreck survivors. The keeper on the island at the time of that rescue was a Mr. W.G. Kennedy. Now, how many family he had, I don't know, but that's the name that was recorded. What kind of views can be seen from up here? Oh, you can see as far north as nearly the loop, west as far as Mount Brandon, uh, and east right up into Trilly Town. It's fantastic. You should come and visit here. Are there any plans to develop the Old Keeper's House here as, as an accommodation destination or perhaps maybe visitor centre or something like that? Well, we have the local Fiendit Hall Committee. They're a group of people that are getting together and they're hoping to generate funds or get grants, draw down grants somewhere along the line and probably get this place done up, yeah. You know, there's something about lighthouses that captures the imagination of a lot of Irish people, I think, you know. Uh, what do you think fascinates people? I think it's the structure themselves. They're absolutely fantastic. To get inside and think that men and women and children actually lived out here for years with no electricity, um, no running water. You know, you kind of think to yourself, my God, how did they actually exist out here? Mm-hmm. When you go home with yourself and you jump in the shower and you have a shower, if they wanted a wash, they had to go outside, bring the water inside, heat it, and have a wash. We're spoiled, being honest about it, compared to these guys that were out here. They're legends in their way. What to put up with it? No, I, I do. Sa- lighthouses, they save people's lives. Noel Sweeney at Phoenix Lighthouse with John McGivney. Now just 17 Irish people have ever rowed across an ocean and more people have climbed Everest than have ever rowed the Atlantic. But now an Irish team hopes to greatly increase both of those numbers. Up to 30 teams will take part in next year's Row the Atlantic Challenge which is an annual event. They leave the Canaries in December to go the 3,000 nautical miles to Antigua. It'll take 1.5 million strokes, it's a race, in waves of up to 30 feet, and the record is just under 30 days. An Irish team, Row Hard or Go Home, is to take part in the 2022 event. I went along to visit one of their boats and hear all about it. Yeah, my name is Oshin McGrath. I am part of the Row Hard or Go Home crew. Um, There's nine of us uh, Irishmen who intend to row across the Atlantic Ocean in December of next year. Why? Uh, yeah, I ask myself the same question. <laughs> My wife asks me it regularly, but here, it's a it's a huge challenge, uh, physically, mentally, um, and uh, we came together as a group, um, got the idea, uh, and we just took it on. Yeah, it's just, I suppose it's just uh, one of those big challenges. More people have climbed Everest than have rode across the Atlantic, and really? only okay. seventeen Irish people have ever rode an ocean, and uh, now it'll be nine more, hopefully. Nine of you going. How many boats are you going to have? So we have two boats. Uh, this is the Rennick R45, which we're standing beside here yeah. at the moment. Uh, um, so we'll have a team of four and a team of five uh, on two boats. And we're going to take part in the Talisker Whist Atlantic Challenge, which is the race that goes from the Canaries to Antigua. Um, and two boats will be racing in that uh, side by side and racing each other effectively. How long is it going to take you? Uh, that's a great unknown, I guess, really. Um, all going well. 
we'd hoped to be at the front of the race, I guess. Um, but 40 to 45 days, it would be kind of a normal enough time frame to aim off for. So it's a long okay. time uh, to be on the boat, yeah. This is the boat here? That's right. Tell me, tell me about this one. So this is a, a Rannick R45 Elite carbon composite frame. It has uh, three rowing stations. It's 28 it, foot long. It's a fairly sizable thing to be pulling around. It is, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if the weight. Um, I suppose laden, you have... Uh, on the boat, you're going to have four people. You've got three rowing stations. You have all your food for um, your trip, intended trip. Uh, emergency water supplies. You've got emergency rations. And you've got all your belongings and bits and pieces. You've got nav equipment. There's solar panels here um, up on top. You've got electrical... Um, the batteries to store the charge and that drive the navigation equipment and the auto rudder and all those nice things that help us on our on our route. We've also got a water pump up here as well that's driven by the, the solar panels and the power and that will give us um, a litre of water every hour roughly, uh, all going well. Okay, so. we'll make water a litre an hour is not a huge amount? No, that's it. Um, I suppose you'd, you'd aim to go across unsupported in that you're not going to break into the emergency rations that's on the boat. Um, if you do crack those, your race time is invalid actually. So we'd hope that that works electrically. Otherwise, if it doesn't, you'd be into the hand pump. So your rest period then would be taken up. With, it just makes life very difficult. Yeah. Okay, yeah. you're essentially pumping the salt water through a filter to take the salt out. Exactly, yeah. It turns the salt water Sounds into... Sounds like hard work. It does, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, before we go on and take a look, it's a rowing boat. So you've got sliding seats yeah so just think of any rowing boat that you'd you'd, you'd see normally in the olympics uh, your two feet are strapped into two kind of foot pedals as it were and you have a, a seat with a nice comfy bit of foam on it and that slides forward and back and then the guy in the the front guy or the stroke guy would be determining the stroke and the length of stroke and then everybody else pulls in behind him ordinarily while we have three rowing stations on the boat here on the deck we have two people rowing and two people resting. So there's okay. two cabins as well where you'd have two people taking a bit of downtime. Yeah. Um, and we'd, t- we'd try to row for two hours on, two hours off. Two hours each? If I'm two hours, yeah. yeah. The the oars are here. They're like an oar in an ordinary rowboat, carbon fibre? Yeah, fully carbon fibre. There's a nice bit of flex in them as well, which is help, helpful. Um, just give it an extra little bit of power uh, with wooden handles, uh, similar to a rowing boat. They're, they're long enough and, and the, the blades aren't quite as big as you'd see in a normal rowing boat because we're trying to sustain that energy over a long period of time and not just maybe a kilometre or two okay. kilometres. So they're, the, they're a different shape as well blade. to an Olympic boat because you're going to be in higher higher waves. Exactly, yeah. So the blade is quite small and it's two reasons. One is we wouldn't be feathering the blade each time you recover, which you would do in a normal boat. As we call it down and away in a normal boat. Exactly. You won't be doing that. No, no, no. And, and that re- makes a big difference. It does. And it actually, if you're doing that over sustained time, you can get wrist injuries and stuff. So I suppose we're trying to minimise that as well and try and keep the blade small enough that it can go through the wind if there is uh, headwinds and then you're not pulling mm. too hard either and it can't be a pull a very hard pull each time yeah. and I know from my rowing days the feathering as you call it the turning the oar over mm. your forearms start to swell up and cramp and yeah exactly we've done a bit of it ourselves to try it out I suppose over the last uh, number of months trying to figure out what works and that can be quite hard yeah will we get on and take sure a look thing. sure thing yeah. um, it looks new Oh, it's brand new, yeah, yeah. Um, it was delivered um, at the start of this year, March. So we've we spent a good bit of time in it, and our second boat is actually arriving in December this year. So we'll have it now. We're, we're well ahead of schedule in terms of boats being delivered. Ordinarily, people will get them in March, and they're going this year. Yeah. But we're not going till next year, so we've, we're kind of headed to the curve, I suppose, in terms of prep. We're going to get aboard. Take a look. Absolutely. Okay. You've got you've got little cabins fore and aft. 
and little is the operative word. <laughs> they are quite tight, yeah. Space is uh, space is premium here in this boat, um, and there's a space, there's a place for everything. Um, everything that we have, all the, the compartments will be numbered. We'll have uh, a sheet with what's in each cabin, where it is, so that things will be accessed easily in the dark if there's bad weather. And the cabins then will be, um, yeah, I suppose ideally one person in them, because um, we'll have to have two people rowing. Worst case scenario, bad weather, storms, if we have to bunker down, close the cabins, then two people will be in there together. So even in the storm, you'll have two people on deck? Yeah, unless you have to stop rowing. So if, if there's okay. a huge headwind and you're not making much ground, we throw out the power anchor to resist your rearward movement. Yeah. And then the two people will be in, or four people will be in the cabins then locked up. So the boat self-rights. Um, so um, if the boat goes over, it'll, it'll right itself. Okay. Once these cabins are closed, um, otherwise it won't. That's I'm going to try and get in here. Absolutely. It's, <laughs> it's it. a bit of a squeeze. Yeah, yeah. I'm not the smallest, but I could just about lie down here, I'd say. Yeah, so if you put your feet in here and these down these gaps here you can so my feet go in under the rowing position back in here so your feet are kind of in those little panels yeah but and i won't be here alone because you're going to have all your food yeah so we'll have food divided between two cabins uh, and out on deck as well and you will we'll open up the food each morning um take your food for the day and it'll be just left then for you to eat in your own time as the day goes on yeah what's the food situation what are you going to be eating so the food is made up of a combination of uh, dry rations and wet rations and dry rations are ones that you have to add water to make them so I think it's 80%, 20% has to be 80% dry and you have to bring a minimum amount of, of wet rations just in case your water maker breaks that you can still eat um, while you wait to be rescued. That'll be an extreme scenario. The thing about wet rations is that they're heavier. Obviously the heavier rations, the more, peop- more people on the boat, the heavier it's going to be and the harder it's going yeah. to be to row. So we'd ideally aim to have as minimum, as little wet rations as possible and keep the dry rations would be our aim. You'll have a calorie count per day? Yeah, so again, that'll be based on your weight. Uh, and we're actually on a calorie counter at the moment, and try, all trying to upper calories. You'd be looking at five to 6,000 calories a day, which is a lot. Um, Professional rugby player level? Yes, exactly, yeah. And, and that'll be three meals um, spaced out through the day with a number of snacks and extra calories that you can get then. Um, bars of chocolate and bits and pieces to keep the morale up at times. Is there any situation whereby you could catch fish or anything like that? Yeah, well, it's been done in the past. Um, uh, there has been um, flying fish land on the boat regularly enough with different uh, different boats. And we have a kind of a cooking station back here with um, uh, jet boils that we can we can use to cook if we need to. But I Boy suppose... flying fish. Yeah, well, for us now, I think our focus really is on, uh, on a fast crossing and uh, we'll be... We're here to race. Uh, it won't be a leisurely affair going across now, so <laughs> we won't be flying fish, I don't think. The rowing stations, they're a bit wider than in uh, an Olympic racing boat, and you've got nice padded seats, but you're going to need them for 45, 60 days. That's it, yeah. And the, pad, the pads themselves, we, we'll, we're experimenting with different pads again. Um, it's a big um, area pre-course stuff, the course that we do in advance. Um, has a lot of uh, health stuff in it and one of them is sores in your, your backside yeah. so you need to kind of take care and of that and your hands and your hands as well yeah nearly backside is nearly worse than your heels as well in the, in the eclipse uh, foot pedals so we're experimenting with different uh, types uh, sheepskin and um, different types okay. of, of seats yeah but these seem to be okay for the moment so we're here at the at the rear station yeah uh, well it's actually the forward cabin um, yeah the, although it's the forward one but we're facing It'll be facing our backs, I suppose, because we're back. Okay, okay, because yeah. of course. Yeah, so there's the forward cabin. Uh, and this uh, will just be for storage mainly. Uh, again, you'll have uh, space for somebody to sleep here. We've little um, compartments. The boat is actually made up of 18 compartments, and according to Rannoch, 
if you were to chop the boat in half, effectively you've got two rowing boats, but they're just not very effective. But it, yeah. it'll float even if it breaks. So they're fairly robust in terms of um, any sort of damage. So this will be mainly storage, really. Um, we'd aim to keep a lot of our weight up the front of the boat as we're going, um, which helps with surfing any kind of waves that we have, or if there's extra wind, we try and keep the weight forward rather than at the back. Sure. Um, so the heavier guys maybe would be here, the lighter guys would be in the rear cabin. Most of our food supplies would be on this side. Um, anything heavy, really. It's a fairly simple and robust-looking design, yeah. so I'd imagine the spare parts you have to bring will be kept to a minimum. That's it, yeah. I, I guess it's it's about weight savings. Yes, every kilogram we save now, it'll it'll mean we can go a bit that a little bit faster. Um, they're simple for that reason that there isn't anything to be repaired really, and everything that can be broken is fairly robust. We'll have spare riggers, spare oars. We're going to have spare um, rollers, for example, the bearings and the um, yeah, the seats can seats, go yeah. with the salt um, over time. Uh, and that's really it, yeah. Yeah, uh, water maker actually spare parts for the water maker just in case there's any issues, and we'll have a second auto helm as well. Um, okay. So the auto helm was in the rear cabin there. Actually, that allows us to set a course or a heading or a, a course over the ground yeah. or a boat track, shall we say, uh, where we want to go, and then um, we can just row and not have to concentrate on steering the boat. Yeah, because on, on an Olympic rowing boat with without a cox, one of the people steers with their foot. Exactly. Yeah, we've tried it in our. We had a training boat prior to this, and it was quite difficult. We have the um, foot attachment. You can see it here oh, see it, yeah. for steering with your foot, so it can be done. Uh, and at times we will have to use it, but I for the most part we'll be using the automatic rudder inside so we'll set a course on the, on the computer and it'll bring us in a straight line the electronics look fairly simple as well it is yeah well I suppose the more simple it is the less likely it is to break okay. uh, what we have is a, a, G, a Garmin nav system that'll show you the position where you are um, it has maps it has AIS so it'll notify us of any other boat traffic in the area Okay. particularly shipping um, which will be large ships and it'll set off an alarm at set distance uh, and we can call them on channel 16 and let them know we're in the area um, so that they won't okay. crash into us. Yeah. What kind of physical preparation are you doing? We actually have a coach, a guy called John Belton uh, from number 17 Personal Fitness and he took, a, he took it on um, for us. He's been training us for the last six months. You're it's, looking fairly lean now, I have to say. Uh, yeah, we're like, trying to put on a bit of weight now is my problem, I think, at the moment. But um, we're, we're building up. It's a combination of strength training, mobility training, um, mental well-being, um, headspace stuff, um, breathing, moving, and on top of that, then the physical element will be some high-end kind of lactic tolerance sessions, like fast 5Ks, fast 10Ks. Moving into some of the longer ones will be like 12-hour rows, or how far can you go in 12 hours okay. uh, individually, just to prep your mind. Is that on the machine, yeah? Yeah, on the machine, yeah. So it's fairly boring, like, but you just got to switch your brain off a little bit and just pull through. Yeah. And um, we've done 24-hour rows. Um, Sessions are varied. It's a lot of aerobic stuff mixed with lactic tolerance just to build mm-hmm. that burn feeling in your muscles. Yeah. Plus, uh, strength training is key, really, and mobility, being flexible. And I think, according to John, anyway, it's um, injury prevention is really what we want to do is prevent injuries before we go and be able to fix them while we're on the boat. And keep the boat moving forward is going to be the, the mm-hmm. motto. Just keep moving forward regardless. Yeah. What's the backup when you're out in the water, you're off rowing? What kind of backup does the race have? So it's labelled as unsupported, um, so we will be fully rowing across the Atlantic without any support from anybody else, and everything that we have on the boat will get us across. Um, as part of the race, the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge, um, there are support boats that go through the field to make sure everybody is well, and should there be any issues with sickness or seasickness, <clears throat> then they'll take that person off. Um, so there'll be two boats passing through the fleet at some point during the, the race. Yeah. So we'll expect to see a boat twice during our our time underwater. It, it's now a year away with the preparation is well underway. Mm. 
What's the name of the campaign? How do we look you up? Are you doing it for a charity? Yeah, so at the moment uh, we're on a corporate um, kind of sponsorship drive uh, to get businesses involved um, to support our funding for the trip. Um, it's at Row Hard or Go Home. Rowhardorgohome.com is the website. Uh, feel free to look us up. We're on Facebook, Instagram. Um, and then once we have our funding uh, fairly aligned from the corporate side, we're going to switch over to uh, a mental health charity. So we're still in the progress of, of finding a mental health charity that we want to get involved with. Um, and we just don't, we didn't want to mix those two things up for the public. That We wanted to make sure that the charity money is the charity money and the corporate sponsorship is separate and keep those two things separate at the moment. But um, we'll be doing it for a mental health charity in time and we'll be sending out numerous links for, <laughs> for charity drives here and there, yeah. We'll hopefully keep in touch with you. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, we'll, maybe we can talk to you again and maybe after the race we can have another chat and yeah. see how it all is or how it compares. And the very best of luck to Oshin McGrath and the Rohard or Go Home campaign. Yesterday, Dublin Port launched a huge project for the Poolbeg Peninsula. It's something we look at in detail in the programme over the next couple of weeks, but it has six elements. There'll be a new private road called the Southern Port Access to link the North and South Port areas via a new bridge across the River Liffey, the construction of the largest container terminal in the country with a capacity for 360,000 containers, a new Roro freight terminal for 288,000 traders, a large diameter ship-turning circle in front of the Pigeon House Harbour, and 15 acres of new public parks. Work isn't due to begin until 2026. Plenty of provision hasn't been gone through yet and it's going to cost a total of $400 million. We'll look at the details over the next couple of weeks. And that's it for Seascapes for this week. We're back at the same time next Friday. Everything on the programme is podcast. It's on our website, rte.ie slash seascapes. If you want to contact me or the programme, the email is seascapes at rte.ie. If you're lucky enough to be anywhere on or near the water over the next week, stay safe. Seascapes is presented and produced by Fergal Keane.